Last week, we began to look at this event that's called the triumphal entry of Jesus. I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with it, uh, particularly if you've been to church any length of time. It is a story that is usually read on Palm Sunday because the day that he came in is called Palm Sunday, and we discussed all of that. But he would begin to weep over Jerusalem, and I want to pick this up again, and uh, there's some uh, important application for us. But as Jesus uh, would make his way into the city of Jerusalem, he would make his ascent from Jericho, which is the, uh, there in the Jordan Valley, up to the Mount of Olives. And there at the Mount of Olives, as he passed through Bethany and Bethpage, it says that he would get a colt, uh, a foal of a donkey. He would ride down into the city, and the people are waving the palm branches and laying their clothes on the road. And as Jesus is doing that, we pick up our text again in verse 41. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so as we saw last week, Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, remember, this is called Palm Sunday. It would be the day before on that Sabbath that John chapter 12 records to us that he is in the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And as he is there a couple weeks after that he would raise Lazarus from the dead and he's there in the home and Lazarus is there and there's a great multitude that is around because they're astonished that Jesus would raise him from the grave when he'd been in there for four days. But during that time on that Sabbath before Palm Sunday that it was Mary that would come and she had this uh, alabaster box of spikenard and anointed Jesus' feet. And when Judas and the disciples began to protest, hey, that's very costly. That money could have been given to the poor if you sold it. Jesus said, back off, guys, because she has done this for my burial. And Mary, she understood what the Lord was going to do but everyone else, it seems like, they don't understand exactly what has taken place, the implications here. Because as he made his way into the city, his triumphal entry, which is interesting that we call it that, because really his triumphal entry is going to be in Revelation chapter 19, when he comes in great power and glory and when we come with him. But he makes his way into the city. And as we looked at that event, as recorded in all four Gospels, this was the one day that Jesus He's orchestrating what has taken place, but he is accepting that public worship of him being the Messiah. They're waving the palm branches. They're laying their clothes on the road. We discuss what that meant, that they were looking for him. Even as verse 11 of the chapter, we need to keep this in mind, that they were expecting him to usher in the kingdom of God immediately. So what they're expecting is the sky is going to open up and a host of angels are going to come and deal with the Romans and to establish the kingdom and restore the nation of Israel. So as this is taking place, the people are cheering. 
the religious leaders that are mounting their opposition against Jesus at this time. They are more determined to put him to death than ever before. And in the lessons ahead, we're going to see that Jesus the next day goes in and cleanses the temple. And then they come and they try to accuse him. They're doing everything they can to find a reason to arrest him. They are determined to have him put to death more than ever. And as they hear the crowds, there's a great crowd. Remember that Mark's gospel tells us there is a great multitude that was traveling with Jesus through the Jordan Valley, through Jericho, making that ascent up to Jerusalem. And there is a great crowd that was there in Jerusalem already. It's the feast of Passover. And they believe that the city, the population of the city, would expand greatly. And even Matthew records that the whole city was moved. The Greek word seismic, where we get that term of earthquake that moves the earth. The whole city was moved, was shaken. And here is the religious leaders hearing the people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the king of Israel. Hosanna to the son of David, saved now. And they're saying, you tell your disciples to be quiet. Rebuke them. This is blasphemy. Because they are ascribing to him the title of Messiah. Blessed is he, Psalm 118, who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jerusalem had never seen anything like this concerning one individual. And as we discussed, the crowds are cheering. Uh, the, the religious leaders are complaining. The Romans, you know, they got to be chuckling. This is your Messiah? This is your Messiah that's riding in on a little baby donkey, on a little colt, a foal of a donkey? You know, if he was really a conquering Messiah, then he'd come in on a white stallion with a great army that's behind him. And so they're kind of chuckling, I would imagine. And here we see that Jesus, his reaction, as he makes his way down the Mount of Olives, he sees the city as he draws near to it. It says they begin to weep over it. This is not the first time that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's the second time because the first time we saw in chapter 13 as he was thinking about Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The ones that killed the prophets. The one that I would love to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate. And he wept over Jerusalem before this time. This is the second weeping of Jesus as he comes down the Mount of Olives. He's making his descent. And he would pass through the Garden of Gethsemane that's there at the base of the mountain. And he would know that in a few days that is, he would go to the garden he would be praying there, sweat great uh, drops of blood, sweating great drops of blood, uh, praying to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as he passed through the garden, he would pass through the Kidron Valley there, making his way into the city. And there in the Kidron Valley was the brook Kidron. And Kidron, by the way, means murky. It means dark. And remember... The reason that it was named that is because, remember, this is Passover. And there's going to be a lot of lambs that are going to be sacrificed at Passover in a few days from this time that Jesus is making his way across the brook Kidron. And they would wash the water mixed with the blood off the Temple Mount. And it would go into that little brook there. And the water mingled with the blood became dark. It became murky. So they called it the Kidron and Jesus passes through that valley. 
where the blood and the water of all the sheep being sacrificed would flow. Matter of fact, kind of an interesting little side note, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes about that a few Passovers uh, after this particular one that we're reading about uh, the last week of Jesus' uh, ministry before he's crucified, that the Romans came to the religious leaders there in Jerusalem and said, we want to count the people. We want to know how many people are in Jerusalem during the feast because we want to make sure that we have enough security. They were afraid that if these Jews rose up and rebelled, it would be during one of the major feasts there in Jerusalem when there were so many people there. So they did it for security reasons. It was the religious leaders that came along and said, listen, please don't count us. Don't take a census. Don't count us directly because it was a thousand years earlier, as you read about at the end of 2 Samuel, that we had a king that he counted the people and God sent a plague. He was angry. So please don't count us. So they came up with a compromise. What they decided to do is the Romans said, okay, then make a count of how many sheep were sacrificed during the Passover, one sheep for a household, and we can get a good estimate of how many people are coming into Jerusalem during this feast. So Josephus writes that 256,000 sheep were sacrificed at that particular Passover. So easily a million and a half people, one sheep per household, two million people are in the city. It is packed out. It is crowded. And here Jesus, as he crosses the brook Kedron, knowing that the blood of the sacrifices would wash down into that brook, being, being murky, being dark, thinking perhaps that in a few days that there's going to be a sword, a Roman sword, that's going to go up through his side, up into his chest cavity. And when the Roman pulled that sword out, the Gospels tell us what came out. The blood in the water came out. As he breathed his last, as he died for our sins, I just wonder, as Matthew, who is an eyewitness of this event, recording that the people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And you know that the son of David was a messianic term because they knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And I just wonder, as Jesus crossed the Kidron, if he wasn't thinking back a thousand years to when David, when he was the king, and all of a sudden his son Absalom leads this rebellion against him. It tells us that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and they rejected David as the king. And David had to flee Jerusalem, and he had to flee for his life. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, it tells us that the king crossed over the brook Kedron, fleeing Jerusalem, rejected by the people. And Jesus, knowing here is the king of all kings, the son of David, that's going to be rejected by his brethren, as they're going to cry out, crucify him, we will not have this man rule over us. And Jesus draws near the city, seeing Jerusalem. He weeps over it. If you had known, even you, especially in this thy day, that makes for your peace, but now it's hidden from you. And the reason that he's weeping, because he knows what's going to happen in a few years after this, that it's described to us that days are going to come, that your enemy, speaking of the Romans, that they're going to build an embankment around you and surround you on every side. And they're going to level you, completely just level the city and your children to the ground. 
And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. Now, last week, I reminded us that this event, the triumphal entry of Jesus, is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That 500 years before this, the prophet Zechariah would write that, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. And you see, it was more than Jesus that he's on the Mount of Olives and all the people are coming in to, to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there's a great multitude following him that he said, oh, Zechariah says I'm the ride in on a donkey. I think this is as good as day as any day to do that. And I think I'll go ahead and do that. No, there was a specific day that he was to do that to fulfill that prophecy. And, and Jesus, as he would orchestrate again this day before that, as they would come to him, for example, in John chapter six, up in the Galilee region, they were going to force him, is what John writes, to be their king. He had healed them. He had fed them. It's after defeating the 5,000. He's at the peak of his popularity. We're going to take him. We're going to make him our king. And they were looking for that political, material, national king. We'll never go hungry. We'll never be sick again. But he dismissed the crowds. And we know that John oftentimes would say that his hour had not come. Now his hour had come. And here Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know. You did not know. That if you tell these guys to be quiet, the very rocks and stones are immediately going to cry out. Because this is the day. If you had known especially in this your day. Because you see, this was not only a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, but it also is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Now, many of you, as you've been here, we've gone over Daniel. We've gone over that prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. But some of you, you don't know the prophecy. And I think that it's important for us to get a fuller understanding of really what has taken place here. Listen, if anybody comes along, and maybe you've experienced this, you talk with people out there that you work with or whoever it might be, those linked to you in your life. And they'll say, well, what makes you Christians so right? How can you have confidence in your faith? How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Matter of fact, I heard somebody on the radio that he was talking about that I was, you know, having a discussion with a, a guy at work and one's a Muslim and one's a Buddha and I talked to them and, and they seem so sincere. They have such a, you know, a, a strong testimony. They seem like they're uh, really strong in their faith and confidence in their faith. And, and, and I started thinking, well, what makes Christianity so unique? How can I be confident in my faith? It seems like they are. What makes the Bible so unique than, you know, when you compare it to other religious books like the Koran or other books that people read for uh, spiritual, you know, belief and things like that? Listen, sometimes, oftentimes, sometime in your journey, you're going to be faced with that. You're going to be thinking, what makes Christianity so unique? How can I be confident in my faith? Three things. Write them down. Don't forget about this. Share it with others. Number one, the reason that 
Christianity is unique. The reason we can be confident in our faith is because all other religions say this is what you have to do to earn favor with God. This is what you have to do to earn salvation. This is what you have to do to go to heaven or to go to nirvana, experience nirvana, or you know, progress in your spiritual journey and all of this. Matter of fact, Eastern religions don't even believe in a personal God. Christianity is unique in that, that we believe in a personal God who loved us so much that he sent his son to go to that cross and die for you because there was a sin problem. And a son of God who is the perfect Passover lamb of God, he fulfills Passover. And he went to the cross to die for your sins. No one else did that for you. And on that cross, he would cry out, it is finished. And those are three very important words because what Jesus was saying in that is that my death on the cross, my shedding of my blood for forgiveness of sin is sufficient for forgiveness and for salvation. He has done the work. So our salvation is unique in this. All other religions say this is what you have to do to earn salvation or earn favor with God. Uniquely, Christianity says that this is not what you have to do, but what he did on the cross of Calvary. And as you surrender your life to him, because you cannot earn your way to heaven, you cannot work your way to heaven, you cannot merit your way to heaven, that it is a free gift. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, is what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. We cannot boast about our salvation. He did the work on the cross. And that's something that you always remember, Christian. If somebody comes along and says, well, have faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to do this. You have to worship on a certain day, or you have to be baptized, or you have to join our church, or you have to go through whatever it may be, that they are saying that the cross is not sufficient for your forgiveness of sin and your salvation. And that is an affront to what Jesus Christ did for us. It is finished. And we can believe that because number two, there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. There is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. He rose from the grave. The tomb is empty. I've been there several times. There's no body in the tomb. And Muhammad, all other religious leaders, he's still in a tomb. Confucius, he's still in a tomb. Buddha, still in a tomb. Elvis, he's still in his tomb. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. I know the young people are saying, what are you talking about? Those of us who are older, you know. The tomb that Jesus was placed in is empty. He rose again, and it is the very foundation of our faith, isn't it? He proved that he's the son of God. He validated what he did on the cross. He conquered sin and death. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, then you are not forgiven and your faith is futile. But we can be confident with the eyewitnesses and looking at the account of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. He's the son of God. And he validated what he did on the cross for you. That's second of all. Thirdly, the Bible. What makes the Bible so unique to other religious books. This book that you're holding in your hand is one-third predictive. And we can forget about that sometimes, but it is absolutely amazing. You see, there was over a hundred specific prophecies about Jesus' first coming in his birth, in his life, in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And on this particular day, two of those prophecies are fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9 and then Daniel chapter 9 as well. And we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 9, how amazing that prophecy is. Absolutely incredible. Matter of fact, there was a professor of mathematics. His name is Peter Stoner. And he began to do some calculations. And as he was making calculations, he calculated what would the odds be if one person who was born in history would come along and fulfill just four of the over 100 prophecies, very specific prophecies, about you know, the coming of, of the Messiah in this first coming. What are the odds of somebody being born and fulfilling four of, of those prophecies? So he did the calculations, came up with the odds would be 1 to the 10th to the 17th power. Now, as you consider that huge number, we can't imagine it, he likened it to if you took a silver dollar, a whole bunch of them, and you buried the whole state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Then you took one, you marked it, tossed it into the pile. Then you stirred it all up. And Texas is a huge state, isn't it? Travis just got through coming back from Texas. He's driven through Texas many times. I never have. But it is a huge state. And you mixed it up, all those silver dollars, blindfolded somebody, had him walk through Texas. Whenever he wanted to stop, he could stop, he or she, and reach down and pull out a silver dollar. The odds of them picking that one that was marked as 1 to the 10th to 17th power. That's four. Then as you get into more prophecies being fulfilled, he starts to write about the law of compound probability. Let's go out to 11 prophecies. Somebody come along, what are the odds of them fulfilling 11 of the over 100 prophecies fulfilled? No longer can you use silver dollars. You have to use atoms in the known universe and mark one. So you get out to over 100, you can't even calculate it. It's so astronomical. Absolutely incredible. Jesus came and fulfilled every dot and tittle of all those prophecies and predictions concerning his first coming. So listen, we can be very confident that the over 200 prophecies concerning his second coming is going to be fulfilled to the letter. And as you look at the world today, it is very evident that Jesus Christ, that his coming is very near. We don't know the day or the hour, but there is going to be that day. You look at how this world is all mixed up and messed up. You know, I used to say a lot that the world has fallen apart, and it is. But now I'm looking at it a little bit different, that the world is falling into place. And it's falling into place that what's going to take place is going to culminate to the second coming of Jesus Christ where he's going to come and establish his kingdom, even as Daniel would prophesy in Daniel chapter 2, and his kingdom will be established. When you look at prophecy, absolutely incredible. And Jesus weeping over Jerusalem the second time, the first time as he's coming from the Mount of Olives, coming in. And we need to remember, just as he orchestrated this day, you two disciples go over and, and get that, that little colt. Matthew says that bring the colt and the mother, bring them here. And if the owner says, why are you taking them? Say, I have need of them. The Lord has need of them. He knows what's going on because this is the day. And everything today, you look around 
is culminating to where he's going to establish his kingdom. And this time it won't be on a donkey, but on a white horse in great power and glory and his vesture dipped in blood and out of his mouth will come a sword as Revelation 19 tells us as he will strike the nations and then he will rule with a rod of iron and he has a robe and on his thigh a name was written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there is an army coming with him and that is you and me. And there is more evidence and more prophecies about the days in which we are living in than in these days that we're reading about. You should have known the day of your visitation. A couple of verses for you to jot down. As Isaiah tells us, the Lord declaring in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Write it down, but I'll read it to you. That the Lord says this. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Also, the Lord declares in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And then in the previous chapter, in chapter 41, verse 26, Who has declared from the beginning that we may know, in the former times that we may say, He is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. In other words, that God is saying in his word the importance of prophecy. It is the very evidence that I am who I declare to be and that there is none other. Who else can stand outside of time and tell you what is going to come before it comes, centuries before it comes? And all of it is going to come to pass, Jesus said, that every dot and tittle of all of God's word is going to be fulfilled. Now, in the Old Testament, you know what the test of a true prophet was. That if they speak in a predictive sense, it has to come to pass 100%. Not 95%, not 90%, not 80%. But if they give a thus say of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord, and they are speaking in a predictive sense, foretelling what God says, and it does not come to pass, then they are a false prophet. They are actually to be taken out in stone. And not only that, but the Lord even says that if they make a prediction and it comes to pass, but they take you away from me and my ways and who I am, then they are false as well. So we have the word of God that is our final authority. And you have those today that will come along and they've predicted when the Lord's going to return, when he very specifically has said that you don't know the day or the hour. So you have those that get a lot of press. People end up selling their homes, you know, and follow the, the guy who says, you know, he's going to come on this date. They'll quit their jobs. They'll put on white robes and stand on their rooftops waiting for the rapture to happen, the return of the Lord. And, and it doesn't happen. And, and so, well, we made a mistake. I miscalculated. It's another day or whatever it is. They're false. And then the world looks at Christians who are looking for the return of the Lord and say, you guys are a bunch of kooks, you know? You're weird. Where's the return of the Lord since your forefathers' times? You guys have been waiting for the Lord to come back for 2,000 years. And even Peter wrote about that in his second epistle right before 
he was put to death. He said, scoffers are going to come in the last days. No one knows the day of the hour. But he is going to come back. And there are those today that will speak that I'm a prophet of God and they'll speak in a predictive sense and it doesn't come to pass and they begin to hem and haw. Well, he really is a prophet. They're a false prophet. They're a false prophet. Then you have those who are not believers. You know, so many people are wondering what's going to happen in the future. And so you have all the analysts, you know, that talks about what's going to happen politically, economically, you know, socially, the the trends and all kinds of voices that are out there. And usually they're wrong or only partly right. There are people, non-believers, that they want to know what's going to happen to them in the future. And it's so sad because they'll spend money calling psychic hotlines and going to somebody that has tarot cards and all of this. And it's a big Rip off. You and I, as Christians, we are privileged to have this book that tells us what our future is going to be. And we may not know what tomorrow specifically is going to hold or the next day, but we know that the Lord holds tomorrow and His promises are true and He's going to take us home. And we can trust in Him as we read in the Psalms and rest in Him and feed upon Him and learn of Him and walk with Him. And He's going to take us home to be with Himself. And we know that his promises are true and that being confident is very thing that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. And the prophets of this book write very specifically about the days in which we were living in and wrote very specifically about this particular day. 500 years, Zechariah, before the triumphal entry, 600 years that Daniel writes about as you're wondering, well, what is that prophecy? Daniel chapter 9. You see, Daniel, he was taken away captive. When you talk about the Babylonian captivity, here's the thing you need to remember. There was three waves, 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He takes Daniel and his three friends off into captivity, other choice men of Judah. He takes away some of the, the vessels and furnishings of the temple back to Babylon as well. Second wave of captivity, 597 B.C., comes in, he takes Ezekiel off into captivity. He's off into Babylon, and he is prophesying. Daniel is in the courtyard of Babylon, in the palace, assisting Nebuchadnezzar. He's prophesying. Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem. And then the third wave, 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army, came in, destroyed Jerusalem. Tired of the rebellion of the king of, of Judah that they had set up, and destroyed Jerusalem. And so here is Daniel near the end of the 70 years of captivity. How did he know it was going to be 70 years? He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 10, Jeremiah is writing a letter to the captives when they first went off into captivity. And he says, listen, live in the land, live peaceably with the people. You're going to be there for a while. Have children, you know, make a living. And the reason that he did that is because there were the false prophets back in Jerusalem, the false teachers that were saying, oh, this captivity, you know, it's only going to last two or three years. God's going to deal with Babylon. Nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem. You know, we have the temple, the temple, the temple. We're safe. And they were false prophets. And Jeremiah says, listen, you are going to be in captivity for 70 years. You're going to be away from Judah, from the land. So make peace. And the people, I'm sure, were wondering, is there a future for us? Is there any hope for us? 
And so Jeremiah went on to write, inspired by God, to tell them that I know my thoughts toward you, says the Lord. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And maybe you're here and you're wondering what's going to happen to me in my future tomorrow. What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen next month? And the Lord says to you, that his thoughts towards you are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And he goes on to say to the Lord that if you call out to me, I will hear you. If you seek me with all of your heart, truly sincere, you will be found by me. Are you here today? And you're wondering, Lord, my future is so up in the air that the Lord says, I want to be your future and hope. Just turn to me and believe in me and trust in me. And come to me. So here's Daniel. He's reading about that, knowing that there's a future for us. Our captivity is going to come to an end. And as he's, you know, thinking about the 70 years of captivity, all of a sudden an angel shows up, Gabriel. And he says, Daniel, I'm here to give you understanding about 70 periods of weeks. Heptabs, if you got a King James. 70 periods of seven years. Now, when we say a decade, we know how long that is, right? Ten years, right? So whenever you read that word heptabs or weeks in the scriptures, it's talking about a period of seven years. And Daniel, I want you to know and understand that seven, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now think about it. Here's Daniel. The city was in ruins at the time. The captivity is just about over. Daniel, uh, I've come to give you knowledge and understanding that 70 periods of seven years or 490 years are determined for your people. Who was Daniel's people? The Jews. And for your holy city, that's Jerusalem. And I mention that because sometimes there will be those who will come and try to argue, well, it's a prophecy for the church. It was a prophecy for the nation of Israel. Very clear in that. And part of that most amazing prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we don't have time to go over it, but understand, Daniel, that the going forth the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 periods of seven years, or I know you're doing the math in your head right now, 483 years. And the street shall be built again, even in troublesome time. Then Messiah, the prince, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that word cut off means specifically he's going to be put to death. Amazing. Amazing prophecy. There was a guy by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. He was the head of the Scotland Yard in the late 1800s. He was an intelligence officer. He was a great theologian. And in 1894, he wrote a book, The Coming Prince, about this prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel. It is one of the most exhaustive works ever written on Daniel's 70-week prophecy. He was knighted for the work that he did on that prophecy. It is the standard work. And so he would, studying the scriptures, when was the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem? 536 B.C., as Daniel's praying here right after that, Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, because Babylon would fall to, to the Medes and the Persians, just as Daniel had predicted, you know, before the fall took place in Daniel chapter 2, that Cyrus, as he would give the decree that the Jews, you guys can go back 
not to rebuild the city, but rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, as you read in Ezra, he would uh, come back and Joshua, the high priest, with just under 50,000 people, and they rebuilt the temple. But it wasn't until later in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king, he had never been to Jerusalem. He was a Jew. He, he hears that Jerusalem still lies in rubble. It, it's still torn apart. He's grieved by it. He prays and fasts for four months. He's standing before the king. The king looks at Nehemiah and says, your countenance, something's wrong. What's, what's on your mind? And Nehemiah, he gave the request. Can I go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem? My, the city of my forefathers lays in ruins. And it was... Artaxerxes, the king, that said, yes, you can. And in the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 2, you can check it out, that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, in the month of Nisan, is when that took place. And whenever a date is not specifically given, it's assumed it's the first day of the month. So here it is, in his 20th year of his reign, in the first day of Nisan, that the command goes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The prophecy is this, that there's going to be 69 periods of seven years or 483 years from the time that that command is given until coming of Messiah the Prince. So with the help of the British Royal Observatory, they begin the calculations and they came with that that command was given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem March 14th, 445 B.C. So you begin to count 483 years using the calendar 360 days, which was the ancient Jewish calendar, 360 times 483. What do you come to? 173,880 days. You start counting on March 14th, 445 B.C., 173,000 880 days, and you have to make the adjustment from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. and all of this. And what they did is they came to April 6th, 32 A.D. This is the day of your visitation. If you had only known in this your day, Psalm 118, the psalmist writes, this is the day that the Lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's weeping over the city. You should have known. And he would rebuke them, as we saw earlier in Luke's gospel, for their hypocrisy. That you don't know the coming of the Son of Man. You know and can discern the weather, but not the coming of the Son of Man. And here Jesus weeping over the city in verses 43 through 44, telling them that they're going to build an embankment. They're going to surround you and level you. Not one stone is going to be left upon another because 38 years later in 70 AD, it was Titus, the Roman general, with the 10th Roman legion that gathered there on Mount Scopus. Whenever we go to Jerusalem, the first place that we come, when we make that ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem, we come into the city of Jerusalem. It's an exciting time. We stop at Mount Scopus and, and there's a blessing that is given to us for coming and making our way to Jerusalem. It's just very powerful. It's very moving. And you can oversee, you know, the Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley and the old city of Jerusalem where the temple was and all of this. And there is Titus and his Roman gen the general with his 10th legion of soldiers that are scoping out the city. And they would then 
surround the city, dig a trench around the city, keep any food from coming in, and eventually build an embankment. And after months and months, they finally broke through the city walls and they leveled the city. Jesus said about the temple in the Olivet Discourse that not one stone would be left upon another. And they tore the temple stone by stone. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that 1.1 million Jews were killed. Nearly 100,000 were taken as slaves Inside the city, as the people are starving, that they begin to stack the bodies up like cordwood in the streets. It was unimaginable what took place. And here he is weeping over Jerusalem because they were going to reject him. You should have known in this your day what makes for your peace. So what does it mean for us? For those of you who know him, there was a day that he came riding into your life. And that was the most important day and the most important decision that you ever made. That you opened up your heart to Jesus Christ. Because he's not going to force his way into your life. That you have a choice whether you're going to believe what God's word declares, that Jesus Christ is your salvation and he is your future and your hope. Are you going to open up your heart to him and cry out to him and ask for forgiveness to be born again by the Spirit of God and have the hope of heaven and true relationship with God that only comes through Jesus Christ and become a child of God and know that you have a wonderful future that his promises are true. Most of you have done that. And now you have peace with God. And I pray that you have the peace of God as you live for him. A peace that passes understanding. A peace that comes when we go to him to give him our supplications, to give him our request. You know, there's somebody in the fellowships on the prayer request that is very dear to us that's going to have bypass surgery tomorrow, very difficult surgery. And talking to, to, to Lola and, and uh, she's very concerned and all that, but there's a peace that she has that passes understanding because she knows that Jerry is in the Lord's hands. And even as Daniel says, that he holds every breath that we take in his hands. And we're going to pray for him. We're going to pray for him as we close. But whatever is going on in your life, that if you can trust him with your salvation, you can trust him every day of your life. Because he wants to do what is best for you in eternity's perspective. And it doesn't mean it's always easy. And it doesn't mean that we don't go through trials. But even in those trials and difficulties, he's doing the work and we can turn to him and call out to him. For you that have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would open up your heart to him. Because he desires to sit upon the throne of your life as Lord and Savior. And he died for you and he loves you. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I pray that you would consider that because this is the day, the scripture says, for your salvation. Today is the day because tomorrow isn't promised to you. And you've heard the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins because he loves you and that he is your hope, and he rose from the grave, and he is alive. There is none other that did that. He is true, 
And he is the only source of forgiveness and for salvation and for you, again, to come in right relationship with the Father. He loves you. Will you come to him? Call out upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as you come to him, and now you have peace with God, being born again by the Spirit of God in relationship with him, then he desires to give you the peace of God in your life and whatever it is that you're facing. And he desires for you to have life and life abundantly. You know, so much of Christianity today is what you can, you know, the self, you know, this and what I can get from the Lord and everything's going to be rainbows and lollipops and, you know, all of this. Listen, as you go through the difficulties and trials of life, you have a God that cares about you and desires to show himself strong on your behalf and to grow you and to speak to your heart and bring you the strength and the comfort that you need. For you, Christian, that is here, but you've said, I'm going to be the master of my own fate. I'm going to do my own thing. You will not truly have peace in your life. And you're going to miss out on what God wants to do. And if there is sin and carnality because you're living for the world, I want you to know this, that this world is going to go away and this world is not your hope. And we just got through going through a book, Ecclesiastes, where Solomon had everything that he desired. He had everything that anybody in the world would want, anybody would look up to, and yet he said, it's all vanity, it's all empty. And I know that we have interests and we love to do things, and I'm not saying you can't make plans or anything like that, but will you just allow the Lord to do what he wants to do in your life? Because he wants to do exceedingly abundantly. And you walk with him. But if you're living after carnality and sin, he is not going to bless sin. He's calling you to a life of obedience and submission to him because he loves you. And it's going to be that sin and carnality in the world that's going to hold you in bondage. And he wants you to be free. Free to live for him and to enjoy him. He loves you so much. He wants to make a way for your peace as you live for him. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for, Lord, just incredible prophecy that really gets us to think and to understand that you do know the end from the beginning. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone that is in this room that you've never truly given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're listening on live stream, maybe on the radio later, that today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. Turn to Jesus and give your life to him. He loves you. He's made a way. He is the way. There's no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, he would declare. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will you call upon him? And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. I believe you died on the cross for me. And that you rose again in your life, speaking to my heart. And you're my future and hope. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Sit upon the throne of my life. And help me to know you and to walk with you. To live for you all the days of my life. And I thank you for this new beginning. In Jesus' name.
if you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you, but I want you to do this while we're being respectful. Will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all in this sanctuary, at this service, at this time? If you're out in the coffee shop, you can put your hand up. If you're listening on the radio, live stream, give me a call. Anybody at all at this time? And I'm not going to prolong it. Raising your hand doesn't save you, but you've said, I've made a decision for Jesus. Okay. God bless you. I see you in the back. God bless you. I see you. On the right. God bless you. So, Father, I thank you for those who have come and made commitments to you. Lord, that they can have the assurance. They put their faith in the one who truly is the Son of God, who's provided forgiveness and eternal life. Fill them with your love. Fill them with your spirit. And bless them. I thank you for this new beginning. And Father, I pray for all of us that we keep our eyes on you. And Lord, that we would keep eternity in perspective because your son is going to come back. And we're going to rule and reign with him when the kingdom is established. So, Lord, fill our hearts with joy and hope. Lord, we do pray for Jerry that's going to have surgery, and we commit him to you. We pray that he would make it through surgery. Lord, it's a very serious surgery, but, Lord, that you bring healing, that you would be with the surgeons, be with the staff, be with him and Lola. Give them a peace that passes understanding because we commit him to you. Lord, I pray for those who are going through difficulties and trials and loss. That instead of running from you, they would call upon you. And Lord, draw near to you and look to you and cry out to you because you do care. Father, I pray that we would find strength and comfort and instruction in you every day of our lives to know you, to walk with you, to live in that love that you have for us and to rest knowing that you're our future and hope. Bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.